You are listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Maybe Woody Allen, maybe Spike Lee. Hello and welcome to SequelCast Special, a show that looks at pop culture topics. Uh, this time around, we'll be talking to Gary K. Wolf. He is the author of uh, several novels, but uh, for this conversation, we'll be honing in on his Roger Rabbit novels. That's right, it was a novel before it became a movie. Uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Not a problem. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I had read the book for the first time, I think, a, a few months ago. We were talking a bit about the Alaska cruise I was on and, and everything. And it was uh, one of these things where, you know, just your love for, for comics and animation and all that stuff really comes through with, uh, with the book. And yet I was thinking when you wrote it, it was like harder to come across those kind of things to watch. You didn't really have videotape. You didn't. They wouldn't show the old cartoons in the theaters. So at the time, when you wanted to watch a cartoon, what would you do? You just would have to do TV Guide, or uh, no? I'd, I had sources for cartoons, uh, and I mean, my influence was uh, kind of threefold. I had uh, I had uh, cartoons, of course. Uh, I had comic strips in the newspaper, and I also had comic books. Uh, and if you, when you, when you read Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which is the source material for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I recommend everybody to read it because it's a work of towering genius. Um, it, when, when you read it, you will see that the characters in the book originally were not cartoon characters. They were characters from comic strips. Uh, and, and in order to make a comic strip, you would get a tune and you would pose them uh, like a like a freeze statue and photograph them, and that's where comic strips and comic books came from. In the book, uh, the characters talked not with with vocal words, but with word balloons, which was a concept that uh, I thought was just hilarious. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when you talk to a tune, uh, he puts up a balloon, and you read it, and if the tune turns around, then his balloon also turns around, and uh, you either have to go around to the other side of him or learn to read backwards because you're looking at the backside of his balloon. And, um, you know, if someone is killed with a tuned gun in the book, uh, the gun puts up a, a bang balloon and the, the bang balloons, are, they're, they're very brittle. They, they fall. And, and if they hit wrong, they're like a, like an iPhone, they can shatter. But if they hit right and they survive, you can take that bang balloon and when you find the gun you think committed the crime, you could produce another bang balloon and match the two bang balloons together. And if they match, 
that's the gun. When somebody plays the piano in the book, uh, the notes go floating off into the, uh, into the, into the sky and uh, people will collect those notes and roll them up and they flip them into uh, eight by 10 sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. So I, you know, I had a lot of fun playing with the conventions of comic books and comic strips in a real world environment. Now, yeah, you're right. I was also greatly influenced by cartoons. So where did I see those? Well, the, the first place I ever saw cartoons was uh, we used to go to the movies. And in my hometown, um, let me see if I can get this right. In my hometown, they ran a, a movie on Saturday, uh, no, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, then another movie on Wednesday, Thursday, then another movie on Friday, Saturday. And these were usually double features. And that was that was the scale, that was the rotation, and there wasn't a whole lot to do in my town. I come from a very small farm town in Illinois, so I used to go to the movies and see every single movie. I mean, the movies uh, for me to get in as a kid was fourteen cents, um, which was a whole lot of money to me as a kid, but you know, relatively chump change. And before every movie, you saw a cartoon. I mean, you saw Echo and Jekyll with Woody Woodpecker, or um, my, my favorite of all time, Donald Duck. I mean, if you got a Donald Duck cartoon, you died and gone to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I saw a lot of the cartoons of my early days uh, in the movies where, where they were meant to be seen in the first place. My other source for cartoons, when, uh, when we got our first television set, um, we were late coming to it because television sets were expensive. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, luckily, my grandfather, my grandmother came to live with us and uh, to thank us for, uh, you know, giving her room and board. She, she brought us a, bought us a TV set and it was, you know, the screen was about as big around as a pie plate and it was black and white, but oh man, it was, it was like magic to have that in your living room. And, um, I used to watch cartoons on the television set. And, and of course, the television stations and television networks didn't really know what to do uh, about programming. I mean, they this was before they thought to come up with Howdy Doody or uh, Kukla Fran and Ollie or original programming for kids. So they went back into their vaults and they pulled out stuff that they thought kids would like. And those turned out to be um, a lot of the old silent comedies, Buster Keaton, um, a lot of Laurel and Hardy stuff, um, some Charlie Chaplin. But the thing that that they they really thought kids would like were the old black and white cartoons. So I used to see tons and tons of old black and white uh, cartoons from the Fleischer Studios, Popeye, Betty Boop, uh, the early Disney stuff, the Dancing Skeletons, Mickey Mouse, uh, Steamboat Willie. Uh, I saw these every afternoon on my on my TV set. And, and so I, I was pretty, and, and I loved them. I mean, I, I love, love, love cartoons. They were just magic to me. So I was pretty well versed in uh, the existence and the nature of cartoons by the time I sat down to write uh, who censored Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Oh, who? Just knowing what I know about the like the early days of television, did you have like a local kid show host showcasing these cartoons? Not, not. I, I my memories are kind of kind of hazy about that as of everything else. But 
Um, we did not. Uh, the, the first kids TV show host I remember was uh, um, Captain uh, Kangaroo. I think his name was Captain Kangaroo. Uh, he was the first one. But before that, um, you just tuned in and they started showing the program. There was no host. There was nobody to introduce it. It just started showing. And, and it was usually either a half an hour of cartoons. So at eight minutes a piece, uh, that was like three cartoons with, uh, with commercials, or it was a, uh, uh, a silent film that uh, usually was, would fill up the whole half hour. Uh, but it didn't really have an introduction. No, it just kind of started and stopped and, you know, the, Fine with me. I didn't want to listen to some guy gab about, uh, you know, the, the mystical significance of of Popeye's muscles and spinach. I hear less. I just wanted to see him beat up Bluto. So. Yeah, I'm reminded as a kid, I was in Argentina for a few years. The only thing on TV in English was like CNN. So my grandma, every few months, <laughs> would, mail us, would mail us a videotape of Saturday morning cartoons. We were at... So, so, so all right, so here's a... So here's an alternate parallel universe for you. Yes. Suppose that I had been you. Okay. I had been in Argentina. <laughs> yes. And instead of watching Mickey Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll and Woody Woodpecker, <laughs> I had watched hour after hour of CNN. That's right. Uh, what would Toontown look like today? I have no idea. Oh. Probably like, I don't know, like uh, like Congress. I don't know. I guess. Yeah. Oh, like all a, the sidewalks would be chirons telling you exactly what's going on as I think, it happens. I think so, yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, in, in lieu of word balloons, uh, this is this is great. You guys are going to make an appearance in my new Roger Rabbit novel. So in I'll lieu of that. word balloons, we're going to have uh, the, the little thing going across the bottom of the the bottom of the book uh, explaining what everybody's saying and telling you exactly what's going on. Yeah. I love, I'm loving this. Yeah. Telling people what to focus. I mean, that, but yeah, the, the tapes would come in and we'd be excited to see new commercials, but like it would, nothing would be in order. It would. So when we moved back to the States, um, it was a little overwhelming to have cable TV and have, you know, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think boomerang was a channel there, but uh, Nickelodeon was showing some of the old Looney Tunes. Yeah. Nick well, at night. You, you, the, that's an interesting point you bring up because people always ask me, well, where did you ever get the idea uh, for Roger Rabbit for, uh, uh, you know, cartoons in a, in a human world? And um, I, I got that from, uh, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons because I wanted to do a book. I had done three novels already, science fiction, uh, hard science fiction novels. And I wanted to do something that incorporated my loves from when I was a kid, which were uh, cartoons, comic strips, comic books, and uh, hard-boiled private eye novels. I, I, I devoured hard-boiled private eye novels, and I got kind of got into that from my dad, who read um, kind of magazine that uh, hopefully doesn't exist anymore. It's called True Crime Magazines, and they featured photographic uh, uh, depictions of true crimes, you know, always murders. So you would read this story and it was a, about a horrible triple slaying in some city. And uh, there was a, there was a photographer, a guy named Ouija, who used to go around uh, listening to police scanner and he would get to the crime scene before the policeman did and sometimes rearrange the corpses. So they were more photogenic. And, you know, I read those 
And, uh, uh, you know, luckily my mom, good mom that she was, never said, hey, don't read your dad's magazines because they'll rot your brain. But uh, luckily I graduated to a better category of crime fiction. Uh, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Ross McDonald, um, you know, the hard-boiled private eyes, Mike Hammer. And so those were my those were my influences when I was a kid. Those were the things I wanted to write my fourth novel, incorporating hardboiled private eyes, cartoon characters, comic books, and comic strips. And I was looking around for for concepts, something I could hang that story on. Um, so I was watching Saturday morning cartoons on Saturday morning, just to, you know for inspiration. I told my my wife, you know, I just sitting here vegging out in front of Saturday morning cartoons for inspiration. And I, I became fascinated not by the uh, cartoons themselves, which uh, by that time were, uh, you know, pretty, pretty schlocky. They were, they were, they were done, uh, you know, 12 cells uh, uh, to the frame. I mean, uh, uh, 12, 12 instead of 24. So it was jerky. And, it, you know, it was the typical kind of, Saturday morning cartoon, but I became fascinated by the commercials because the commercials had cartoon characters. They had Tony the Tiger, the Tricks Rabbit, uh, Crackle and Pat uh, and Pop, Captain Crunch, um, and, and these were these were cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I said, "Geez, you know." what a great idea for a novel that would be. What would it be like if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? So I spent a year uh, researching all the different conventions of comic books, cartoons, comic strips, to see what kinds of things would, would be especially hilarious if they were incorporated into a real world. Like uh, if a, if a, uh, you would, you know, the, the tunes of the humans would be segregated. The tunes would be second-class citizens, kind of like uh, uh, blacks or Jews in Germany or whatever. They would have their own place to live, and they would, you know, not be able to freely come into uh, human territory. Uh, so they would have their own facilities, and you would have tune bars. And you know, what if a tune went into a tune bar? What would a tune drink? And I, well, a tune would drink tune tonic. And, you know, you know, what would happen to a tune if a tune had a drink? And, you know, I think, uh, you know, you kind of saw a little of that in the, in the movie. Uh, and then, you know, what happens if a human goes into a tune bar? Would the human get served? Or would they say, hey, we don't serve humans here? Uh, and you saw a little of that uh, in the Ink and Paint Club when, um, you know, they're keeping Eddie Valiant out. And, you know, what happens if a tune goes into a human bar or does a drink? Oh, man, all hell breaks loose. So, um there were there were a lot of things that I had to investigate because when I wrote that book, um, I realized that every single detail of it had to be consistent with the rules of the world that I created, a world where cartoon characters were real. If any minute detail was inconsistent with the rest of the world, I was going to lose the readers immediately. I mean, because readers are smart and they could pick that stuff up and they would say, hey, you know, that just doesn't make sense. That just would never happen. Uh, and I I think I was I was pretty good about uh, maintaining consistency throughout the throughout the book. Um, 
there's there's no nothing in there that's a disqualifier. Nothing in there that would not happen in a world where cartoon characters are real. When we were doing the movie, I mean, that was one of the rules of the world that I was very specific about uh, telling the filmmakers that we have to adhere to uh, to this. We we can't we can't we can do gags. You know, the more gags, the merrier. But they all have to be consistent with the rules of the world. You know, you, you, you can't break that. And in the movie, uh, we only broke those rules one time. And um, that was uh, a gag that Bob Zemeckis, the director, came up with that he thought was hilarious. And we all tried to talk him out of it because we said this, this breaks the rules of the world. You can't do that. Uh, you know, Bob's, Bob sees the director and what Bob Z wants, Bob Z gets, so he put it in. And that scene is when Eddie Valiant is in the elevator with Droopy and the elevator goes careening down and lands on the ground floor. And all of a sudden you look and there's Bob Hoskins all squashed up flat like a pancake. Well, that that violates the rules of the world in a big way, because that would never happen to a human. Never. Um, but, uh, nobody really seemed to complain about it. So, um, I guess we kind of got away with it. Although, um, I, I still wasn't happy with it. And if I was going to do the movie over again, I'd do it exactly the same way and cut that out. So there you go. <laughs> I'll admit that's a funny scene. And yet when I was a kid, I think the first time I saw it, I was maybe like eight or nine years old. And and that scene struck me as out of place. And I just remember even thinking in that moment, oh, no, no, we shouldn't see him uh, squished. We should see him just like bouncing around, getting injured. Absolutely. When he finally uh, steps uh, out, he should be should. bruised. All right, I'll tell you what, in ne next movie we make, I'm going to put you on the crew. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly what we told Bob. We said, you know, Bob, we can do we can do this and make it funny. When that elevator hits the bottom, Hoskins is bouncing off the walls. He's bouncing off the ceiling. Boom, boom, boom. He's like a ping pong ball. And he's just bouncing. And then he bounces slower and slower until finally he stops. That was what we wanted to do. But Bob said, oh, no, no. It'll be funnier if he's flat as a pancake. So uh, another elevator scene, if you're into elevators, as I think a lot of people are, um, the... I was mentioning that uh, film is animated. Uh, film goes through a camera at 24 frames a second, which means that the animators have to draw 24 drawings or 24 cells uh, per second in order to sync up with the film as it's going through the camera. And animators discovered early, early, early on in the animation process, way back in the Gertie the Dinosaur days and the Ugin Moog, days and the you know, Alice in Wonderland, the, the first one black and white um, days, they discovered that they could screw around with six of those 24 drawings and put in little visual jokes and the human eye would not be able to pick it up and go through too fast. But the animators were there and oddly the, the projectionists who were projecting the movie would know it was there because they would they would look at it, and a lot of times, uh, we uh, we put a number of those into the Roger Rabbit movie because it was animated on the ones at twenty four frames a second. And if you if you look at that elevator scene in freeze frame, 
and uh, look at it frame by frame, which you can now do with a, with a good quality DVD. Uh, you look at it freeze frame, um, cell by cell, frame by frame, you will see that up on the wall of the elevator uh, is written for a good time called Snow White. And, uh, I have seen that, yes. Yeah, and uh, originally underneath that, we put Bob Eisner's home phone number. And, uh, you know, cooler heads prevailed eventually. We said, you know, maybe that's not the smartest thing we've ever done. So we took out Eisner's phone number. And, but the rest of it is still there. And the whole movie is actually filled with those. You know, the, the most infamous one is when um, Eddie Valiant is coming out of uh, coming out of the tunnel and in the cab with Jessica and they hit the the dip that Judge Doom has spread across the road and Benny the cab hits a light pole and Jessica and Eddie go flying and uh, they somersault through the air. And if you look at that frame by frame, uh, you can see, first of all, that Eddie Valiant is clearly a dummy. It's not really... Uh, Bob Hoskins going through the air, although he volunteered to do it, they they, they chose that he did it. Um, Jessica is doing this incredible somersault where she goes kind of end over end, and uh, her hair billows out, and her dress billows out to match it. It is a beautiful, beautiful piece of animation. But as she reaches the apex of her somersault and her legs spread open, she's not wearing any underwear. Okay. And uh, she continues and, you know, lands, boop. Well, this is like two frames out of 24 and it's 24 per second. So it's uh, what, uh, one twelfth of a second. Um, but uh, when the video came out on, uh, on DVD, on, on Laserdisc first, and people could watch it frame by frame, people did. And they watched it frame by frame to find these hidden gags. And they found that one. And um, it became a, 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 a cause celeb. I mean, uh, Disney had a bottomless woman in Who, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And to show you how non-salacious that was, USA Today printed a picture of that, that scene with Jessica with the legs spread and no underwear on the front page in full color. Uh, and, you know, it's like looking at your Barbie doll. I mean, it's like uh, there was really nothing there to see but uh, still it was there. And, um, you know, of course, this, this is Disney. Somebody's got to pay the price. So at first uh, Disney said, well, you know, we had the movie duped onto video cassette in China and a rogue Chinese animator got a hold of it and painted out Jessica's panties. And, you know, that didn't fly. So, um, they uh, they then said, well, maybe it was an American animator. We're going to hunt him down and we're going to find out who he was and we're going to fire him and make sure that he never works in the animation industry ever again for inflicting this this horrific image on the minds of the young. Well, everybody knew who it was. I mean, it wasn't a secret. Everybody knew who did that scene. And uh, I'm not going to name names, but the animator who did that scene uh, was currently at that time when it came out on video was currently directing what wound up being Disney's biggest animated feature. 
and uh, so they weren't about to fire him. Okay, uh, so that that whole thing just kind of quietly, uh, quietly petered out. Right, and it's um, I mean, just looking back at all the behind the scenes stuff on the movie with uh, with Bob Hoskins and what he was having to react to with the weasels and everything it really it was just such a smart piece of casting and it, it made me think to an older part he was in the uh the mini series of pennies from heaven where he's an ordinary guy in these in extraordinary surreal circumstance where people are yeah. bursting into 1930s yeah. music yeah you know i just um uh, i just found out a, a, a something that i didn't know um there is a scene in the movie where uh, Eddie and Roger are in an alley. I believe they're in Toontown. I can't remember. But uh, Eddie is talking to Roger. It's very dimly lighted. And Roger is up against the wall. Uh, well, Roger, for whatever reason, extends his body. And his body gets longer. And when you look at it, 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 it looks like, well, well, he's scared. And, you know, his body got long because he's scared. Actually, that was one of the first scenes we filmed in the movie. And at that point in the filming, Bob Hoskins had not yet gotten really adept at making his eye, eye line match the rabbit's eyes. So he was looking too high. The rabbit was originally supposed to be rabbit size and normal rabbit, but he was looking too high. And afterwards, when we looked at the rushes, we realized that he was looking over the rabbit and um, you know, uh, another one of those things, if, if there's a detail that uh, doesn't work in the movie, audiences are going to pick it up. And if, if that whole movie had been Bob Hoskins staring aimlessly off into space and never looking the rabbit in the eyes, you immediately are going to say, oh, there's no rabbit there. Um, so the animator said, well, you know, we, we can't go back and, and reshoot it. The set's been struck. What do we do? So they elongated the rabbit. And they made the rabbit longer and um, works fine. I, I, I just found that out about a week and a half ago. And I went back and I watched that scene in the movie. Looks fine. It looks like Roger was scared and you know, kind of cowering and sort of got bigger. Um, but Hoskins was amazing. He, uh, at the end, toward the end of the movie, he told me that he could now see the rabbit. And uh, I, uh, I got together with him year or two later when he was in Boston filming Mermaids and uh, we spent a lot of time together and he told me that it took about it took about six months for the rabbit to actually disappear from his vision and his son his oldest son was getting kind of ticked because Bob was spending more time playing with the imaginary rabbit than he was with his son uh, and he was an incredible trooper my my only regret about the movie uh, the only regret I have, I think it was a fantastic movie. My only regret is that Bob Hoskins did such an amazing, amazing job in that movie. The, the best job of acting I have ever seen uh, standing on a, on a stage in, a, in an empty warehouse with a green screen with nothing around him and making everything up in his mind and reacting to everything perfectly when there was nothing there. Uh, he did such an amazing job of acting that he should have gotten the Academy Award for that. Uh, but he didn't even get nominated uh, because A, it was an animated movie and, uh, you know, 
the Academy, you know, doesn't take kindly to animated movies as as a as a real art form. And secondly, uh, Bob, to his great credit, made it look too easy. It, 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 it didn't look hard. I mean, it looked like he was, he was really there doing what he's doing. And uh, um, everybody said, well, you know, it's just another day, another day at the office for, uh, for Hoskins. So uh, he should have, he should have won that easily. Uh, do you have any other stories about working with Bob Hoskins, either like personally or professionally? He, he is, he is a fascinating figure and cinema is poor for his loss. Oh, I got to tell you, I mean, um, I could tell you stories about him. <laughs> he, he, the, he, uh, he was a classically trained Shakespearean actor. All right. Uh, and that's how he got his training. But if you ask him, how did I get into acting? Uh, he would always tell you a story about how he was a poor working man in the slums of um, London or wherever he was. And, he was in a pub one night and he saw this line of guys waiting to go upstairs to an upstairs room. And he thought there was a hooker up there. So he got in line. And when he got to the front of the line, they gave him a couple of pages and said, here, read this. And it turned out he was auditioning for a, for a movie and he read the pages and he got the part. And that's the story he tells about how he got into the movies. <laughs> When in fact, uh, he, he had already had a lot of training uh, before that. My other favorite Hoskins story, when he gets thrown out of the Ink and Paint Club, he was on a wire. And of course, he, you know, he was manipulated and, and flung through the air, but he was actually dropped onto that pile. It was cardboard and it was supposed to be shock absorbing, but it turns out it wasn't. And when he landed, he broke three ribs. Now, uh, we had to take him to the hospital. Uh, he got x-rays. He had three broken ribs. They taped him up. And we thought, oh, geez, you know, there goes our schedule. You know, we're going to have to wait two, three months for Hoskin to come back. He was back in the next day, all taped up. Said, Let's go. Ready to go. Just an incredible trooper. A wonderful guy. And he will always and forever be my Eddie Valiant. Even though, uh, to my mind, when I wrote the book, uh, I saw Eddie Valiant as more of a Harrison Ford uh, or, or Paul Newman kind of guy, but uh, Hoskin turned me around. Hoskin will always be my Eddie Valiant. Right. Looks like we have about nine minutes left here in the Zoom. Um, I really like the the latest book, Jessica Rabbit, Zurious Business. I don't know if Zurious, I'm Zurious, uh, actually. Zurious, okay. Uh, yeah, it, people are pronouncing it all kinds of ways. I get X-Serious. Uh, <laughs> Jessica Rabbit, Serious Business. Serious is a secret uh, spy organization. And uh, I decided that Jessica needed her own book. Um, so that was my pandemic book. I wrote that while I was in isolation in the two years uh, for the pandemic. And it tells the story of Jessica, who starts off as a poor, not particularly attractive uh, um, shop girl. And uh, it talks about how she went from that to becoming uh, the Jessica Rabbit we, we know and love. Um, it, uh, it has a lot of... Uh, what what my editor called uh, oh spit moments, although he didn't use spit, <laughs> no spit moments, um, because you will be reading the book and you will suddenly realize what's really going on. 
that the that the story is not really the story that it appears to be that there are other things going on and uh, there are two or three of those moments in the book and they work really well um uh, that was a tough book for me to write because, you know, I mean, a, a guy writing a book about about a, a woman and not just any woman, but probably uh, the the greatest uh, cartoon uh, sexual character of maybe all time up there with Betty Boop and uh, Red Hot Riding Hood. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I did not overly sexualize her. I wanted to make sure that I didn't trivialize her. Uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, I, I didn't make her just a foil for the men. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that she was not just the equal of the men around her, but actually smarter uh, and, and better in all ways. And uh, so I have beta readers. Whenever I write a book, I will give it to people who I trust who will read the book and give me comments and all of my beta readers for the Jessica rabbit serious business novel were women. Uh, and, and I made sure to, to, to find the most militant feminist women I could find uh, women who were, who were not going to pull any punches and uh, would tell me if, if I had uh, done something amiss to Jessica's character and uh, all of these women, I think there were 75 of them. All of them had basically the same comment. Uh, Jessica Rabbit is the kind of woman that I've always I've always wanted to be. Uh, so I, I think uh, I think I've succeeded pretty well with that one. Um, it's got a lot of surprises. Um, it, if you've read it, uh, you'll know that the ending is kind of set up for possibly uh, Jessica Rabbit uh, more serious business. I don't know. Um, but it was a lot of fun for me to write. Yeah, and it was nice to see sort of a commentary on, um, like James Bond spy movie sort of. Tropes. Yeah, that, that was that came to me later after uh, after I kind of ran through just about every hard boiled private eye writer I could find. Um, uh, um, Ian Fleming started writing James Bond novels, and those came out when I was in college, and of course I started reading those. I became fascinated with secret agents and uh, Sean Connery and, uh, you know, Ursula Andress in her bikini on the, on the beach. And uh, I, I just thought it would be fun to, to kind of take a break from uh, hardball private eye novels for a while and do a spy novel. So that's the genre there. And, I, and it works. It works, works, works really well. Great. Well, uh, Gary, thank you so much for your time coming on here and talking uh, Roger Rabbit with us. If um, it's great having you. Yeah. If uh, people want to find out more about your books, where should they go? Uh, you can go to my website, www.garywolf.com. Uh, they've got, uh, I've got all my books on there. I've got uh, all my podcasts, including this one, I hope. Uh, yeah, we'll send you a link. Importantly, um, you can, you can read all about the new audio versions of uh, all my Roger Rabbit books, which just came out, uh, which saves me a lot of time because when somebody wanted an audio version previously, uh, I would just call them up on the phone and read it to them. Uh, it just took me hours and hours, but this saves me a lot of time. So, um, uh, you know, go to www.garywolf.com. It's an entertaining site. 
Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. 